0: In uh, your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 9. Great to have Sadie with us this morning, and great to see uh, Rebecca using her talents uh, on the piano and growing into the role every minute. So thanks for that. Uh, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read uh, from, well, we're looking at verse 42, but we're going to read from verse 41. Um, just to set a little bit of context. And just as God's word is open before us, let's, um, let's pray for a moment, shall we? Heavenly Father, open our hearts, we pray, um, that we may see wonderful things in your word, in your law, in your gospel. And help us to see um, the wonder of it afresh today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 41, and God says this For truly I say to you, uh, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong uh, to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think I'm maybe a little bit loud, Ian, but maybe that's not the case. Um, Thank you. Um, Impeachment is a big word coming across, from the, uh, across the Atlantic from the United States these days. Um, that's when they have some sort of evidence of alleged malpractice uh, and they want to bring a challenge to the President of the United States to decide if he's fit for office. Uh, the issue is, uh, at the moment, did Donald Trump ask the Ukrainians for information when he shouldn't have? But they might just be wasting their time because... No president of the United States has ever been impeached and taken out of office. Most of you will remember President Clinton back in the 90s. That was the last close call to impeachment. He lied in public office about his misdemeanors with a certain woman, and he was let off. One of the reasons he got away with it was that so many people didn't think that it was that big a deal. There was a kind of so what that showed the moral temperature of the nation as a whole. No big deal. We spoke last week about the difference in God's view of greatness and ours as human beings. To be great in God's eyes, to be first, means to be last and indeed the servant of all. This week, we see that God's view of sin is very different from ours as well. A small deal to us is a big deal to God, and vice versa. If we read verse 41, we get the sense of that, which we just read. If you give a cup of water to a disciple of Jesus, you will certainly not lose your reward. You will be rewarded. That's a small thing in our minds. Giving a cup of water to someone is is, is nothing. But it's a big thing to God. God. But verse 42, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, then whatever we might think about it, that's a big deal with God. That phrase, these little ones, uh, has been assumed by some to be a reference to children because of the way it sounds in English, we talk like that, and because of the fact that Jesus has just set a child in front of the disciples a few verses before uh, and and we read that as well. That's certainly possible that, 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 that it's speaking about children. But this is also a word that means small ones uh, in the sense of, of least importance or insignificant or humble. And if you look back to verse 41 and indeed what we talked about last week in the passage, then that, that, those are the marks of a disciple, a great disciple according to what Jesus was saying. That's the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them as they, as they jostled for position and prominence. Uh, be humble. Take, take the lower place. That's what he was teaching them. These little ones are believers. Look at verse 42. They, they believe in Jesus. And if it refers to all disciples, those who are humble and, and don't have grand ideas of themselves, then, of course, that would in- could include children who believe too. This morning, we're on a message of great seriousness. We're on somber mood because, I mean, you saw the verses and so did I that we just read. This message this morning is about the seriousness of a matter called sin, which Jesus speaks about repeatedly in this section. Firstly, it's a matter serious enough for drowning. Jesus uses... um, it would be better, it is better statements to make a clear point about sin in this last part of Mark chapter 9. Uh, if, if someone leads a follower of Jesus to sin, if someone leads them to stumble, that's the actual word that's being used here, uh, causing someone to trip or uh, causing the downfall or failure of their commitment to Christ, then, then that is a very, very serious issue. Jesus says it would be better if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The great millstone, word for word uh, in translation, is the millstone of a donkey. Now what on earth is that, you're asking? What on earth is a millstone of a donkey? Um, well, it's not just a regular domestic millstone that the women of the day would have used to, to grind corn in their homes. It's a large industrial uh, grade millstone that, that was our glass shape. You can see it on the screen. Uh, and we had donkeys walking around uh, in a circular formation to grind the corn or the, or the grain. It's a massive big thing. You hang one of these around your neck and the chance of you surviving uh, when thrown into the sea was well, zero the chances of that would be zero. You would certainly drown. This is probably something of a proverb of Jesus' day, a well-known saying, you'd be better to die in a ditch. That's the sort of thing we say today, or some people say today. It's it's a a big, heavy-duty thing around your neck, and Jesus is making a very big, heavy-duty point, causing someone to sin is serious. Children, you don't provoke your children to wrath, or someone else's children to wrath. That's biblical, isn't it? New believers, weaker Christians, not long in the faith, need our special care. We look after them. We watch out for them. We, we watch what we say. We, we guard our tongues and, and what we do. We, we need to be careful that we don't lead them to sin. Maybe even in something that we don't have a conscience with. Something we don't struggle with, but they might We take care. Romans 14 is all about this sort of thing. You can read it uh, whenever you get home. The weaker brother or sister and 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 the stronger brother or sister's responsibilities as a result of that. But this goes further. For as a wider matter, if Jesus is speaking about all of his followers, and I've explained to you how I believe that he is, then anyone who causes a Christian of any standing to sin, it's a very serious matter. You don't lead your wife to sin. You don't lead your husband to sin. You don't put something up online that can provoke somebody else to jealousy just to make yourself feel good. You don't wear something that will cause another man, or another man's, uh, another husband or, a, or, or indeed a woman to sin. You don't suggest a partnership with someone in some activity that you know to be wrong just to make yourself feel better. This sort of thing. For even though society says go for it, even though society thinks little of such an action, Jesus says it's a serious thing. It's life and death on His scale. It's drowning uh, in, in in Strangford Lock kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, it, it, Jesus' scale really matters here. The implication here is that if you cause someone to someone else to sin, yes, they're responsible before God but you're responsible too, surely. For Jesus, those who cause others to stumble into sin will face a horrible fate, for it's better to be thrown into the sea and to drown. That must be what he's saying. Secondly, it's a matter serious enough for surgery. Jesus moves from um, other people causing a follower of his to sin to something more personal. From external matters to internal matters, in verse 43. This time it isn't about what others cause, but what causes you to sin. What causes you to sin? Have a think about that. feels nice uh, if we can blame someone else. My upbringing, the government, the boss provoking me, the old devil. Yes, he gets plenty of the blame, doesn't he? And he certainly has his part, but you can't just blame him. The Bible doesn't allow you to just blame him. It's our personal fault, as this passage shows. There are three personal body parts that are implicated here. The hand, the foot, and the eye. Three important parts that that you need, that we all need. The hand, which is the basic human instrument for actions and work, the foot, which is the basic human instrument for transport, and the eye, which is the basic human instrument for sense, for sensing. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, then it needs surgery. Cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to be without than to sin. Now, these are shocking statements, aren't they? But please note, importantly, that Jesus is using what they call hyperbole. In other words, he's using strong emotive language to make the point in a strong way. He's overstating intentionally to make the point. We we might do this too. You might say, uh, we walk the legs of ourselves, but come home with them still attached. Ever done that? You might say I would I would kill for a bacon butty, but you of course wouldn't really. And you might say that that car cost me an arm and a leg to fix, but you are still left with two of each. It's a figure of speech, isn't it? You don't. You're not meant to take this literally. Jesus doesn't mean for his disciples to actually do this. For in Deuteronomy, uh, self harming and self mutilation are condemned. Deuteronomy, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Okay, so we got that statement. We also got what happened on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember? They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And and no one responded, by the way. No God responded. But, of course, they were condemned for behaving like that. We're not to self-harm. This is a big issue in our community because it sits side by side with suicide, doesn't it? And Dundonald has had its fair share, sadly. We're not to destroy our own bodies, which which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, for we are not our own. If you have a habit that's destroying your body, then I strongly insist on the authority of God's word that you stop it. And you get help to stop it, for it's killing you. And perhaps, in an even greater sense, we're not to self-harm spiritually either by not reading or praying or, or gathering in church Sunday by Sunday or at the midweeks. Of course, if you work shifts, uh, you really need to see Sunday morning as more than, than your bread and butter for coming to gather to worship. But it, it must be self-harm to do anything else. Isn't that right? Spiritually. Sin is self-harm, spiritually speaking, too, of course. It's, it's, it's not fun. It's not harmless. Uh, it's, it's actually harmful madness to tell the truth if it's killing you. And that's the way Jesus speaks about it. Sin is not just a, a list. There, there is no list Biblically, sin is a heart issue. It's it's always a heart issue, a rebel heart that wants to be in charge, that doesn't want to obey God. And what is in your heart shows itself, as Jesus explains on several occasions. And he's also explaining it here because your hand refers to what you do. And you could sin in, in action. You could do that in a thousand ways and more. Your feet uh, refer to where you go. Uh, you could sin in where you go. Uh, you could find yourself, like in Psalm 1, uh, in the company of sinners, uh, to a place where sin is practiced and promoted. And, and you're not there to witness, by the way. Uh, you, and your heart would show which, what your reason was. It would show it, wouldn't it? And your eye. Your eye can lead you to to covet, the women we're looking at yesterday at the Irish Women's Convention. It could lead you to lust, uh, to to, to lust after things, to look at things online, to, to all manner of sexual sin. A glance could be innocent, or it could be guilty. Depends on your heart. Isn't that right? All commands come from the heart. It's the control center of your being. And that's where it filters out to your hands and your feet and your eyes. Jesus is not expecting his followers to follow through with these statements. He's not. He's using these to show seriousness. We might be tempted to blame society or our circumstances or our upbringing. We might want to talk about white lies or excuse something as, you know what, that's just the way I am. Jesus doesn't do that. He sees personal responsibility and he also sees a matter of utter seriousness. To people in where you work and live, sin is just a matter of fun, a source of personal amusement, something to chuckle about in the office, a story to share, to bring a bit of cheer to an otherwise dull day. Jesus couldn't disagree more. The point here. Is whatever causes you to sin, you get rid of it. You get away from it. Cut it out. It's killing you slowly, but it's still killing you. In the first two statements, Jesus says it's better to enter life with the hindering body part removed. Enter life is Jesus speaking about eternal life, isn't he? He's speaking about the life with God forever. He's speaking about the headline of heaven, isn't it? That's life with God. The ultimate state for the faithful follower of Christ. Life with God. Perfect. What you were made for, life. And the third statement about the I, this is then replaced with, enter the kingdom of God. You notice it there? It's not enter life this time. It's enter the kingdom of God. Uh, These show you that they they refer to the same thing. And enter life is the same as enter the kingdom of God. But then, of course... The alternative is laid plainly before us here. And this is very sad and sobering this morning. Because in God's ultimate reckoning, there are only two final destinations. As we see that sin is finally serious enough for fire. These are Mark's only mention of the word hell in these three instances which we have before us. The word used is is Gehenna. Uh, in our New Testament, uh, we have we have two main words. We have another one, but it's only used to once. Two main words for hell: uh, Hades, which is. Often translated as hell in uh, some of our Bibles, some of our translations. Uh, it's probably better to be seen as uh, the grave or the abode of the dead. It's the equivalent, mostly, of the Old Testament word sheol. Uh, but when it, uh, it's used that way in Acts chapter 2, but it's also used um, as a place of, of suffering in other passages, not so many times, but, but it's still there in Luke 16 uh, the rich man and Lazarus, that's Hades. And he's certainly suffering there, the rich man. But Gehenna, which is used here, uh, is used 11 times in our New Testament. Uh, it's, it's actually the word for a large burning rubbish tip outside uh, the city of Jerusalem on the south side uh, at the valley of Hemen. It's a, it's a rubbish dump uh, where fire burned day and night uh, all the time. And there we get the picture. This is where... In the dark days of the Old Testament, Israel, God's people in Israel, children were sacrificed to Beal and Molech. And we recoil rightly at the thought of that. But of course, the reality is that when sin is at its worst, children are sacrificed. Isn't that right? They're sacrificed today. Not to Molech or Baal, but uh, to the gods of me, myself, and I, or the God of my own convenience, or the God of it's my body, I'll do with it as I please. And we pray, and we petition, and we ask God to protect us from the horror of the sacrifice of the unborn in the place of safety, what's supposed to be the most safe place on earth. Please do all you can, as the clock ticks, to preserve our nation from the abyss of such a thing. That's what it is. Our um, series is called, What's He Like, as we go through Mark's gospel. But this morning, we're forced to consider another question, what's hell like? It's a place, isn't it? The language here shows us that this is a place you can go to. It's not just a metaphor for a difficult life. You know, you hear people talking like this, oh, that was that was hell. No, that wasn't hell. Hell is no metaphor. It's a place you're sent. Jesus says three times here that you are thrown into hell. It's a place you're sent. Matthew 25, 41 gives us a glimpse forward to the end, uh, the reckoning at the end of the world. Uh, Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You're sent there. It's a place you're sent forever. Verse 44, it's unquenchable fire. Verse 48, the fire is not quenched. It's never ending. There's no joy in this for me. As I explain this to you this morning, this is horrible, but but this is what God's word says, and this is true. Matthew 8 verse 12 tells us more. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Put those two things together. It's a place you are sent forever of darkness and fire. Those two things sound contradictory, don't they? Can God make dark fire? Well, I would suggest yes, but perhaps the images are symbolic. But, but don't miss the, the wood for the trees here, right? This is, a, this is a certainly a place of torment. Certainly a place of torment. Gehenna tells us that. It's, a, it's the cursed place outside the city. It's also the place where their worm does not die, as Jesus says. That's a quote from Isaiah 66. In fact, it's the very last phrase of the book of Isaiah, Those who rebel against God will be continually punished. There's no getting out. In Gehenna, at the rubbish tip, the worms continually eat whatever flesh is thrown on the tip. And they never stop. It's a place of torment. It's a place of separation. There there you'll be separate from the goodness of God. Uh, He withdraws that from you. You only get the full force of his righteous wrath there. It's a deeply horrible place. It's a place you don't want to go to. It's, it's a warning here in the strongest of strong terms. Don't miss what Jesus is saying, right? Living your whole life with two hands and ending up in hell, bad bargain. Better to enter heaven having lived life crippled. Living your whole life with two feet and ending up in hell, bad bargain. Better to enter heaven with your, having lived a life lame. Living your whole life with two eyes and ending up in hell. Bad bargain. Better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. And aren't we struck by how far that is from the people that you know are today? How far that is from there, the way they think? Isn't that right? Life is all that matters the here and the now. Getting things in order, being comfortable, a couple of holidays in the year, saving for a good Christmas. The next life is not considered or thought on or any anxiety about it acted upon at all. That is so far from what we've just described. It's incredible, isn't it? Jesus says that that perspective is so far off, it's incredible. And oh, that men and women would hear the words of Jesus and listen. Oh, that, they would, oh, that we would tell them gently and, and respectfully, yes, but with the strength of the grave concern that it warrants. God have mercy. God open their eyes to their state. Sin is serious enough to take you to a place that you really don't want to go to. Some people think that this isn't preached enough anymore. I think that's true, but I do think that dangling people over the pit and scaring people as an evangelistic tactic has reduced in its effectiveness. People don't respond to that, that well to that anymore. And of course, merely scaring someone doesn't make them a Christian. But the danger's real. Jesus shows us this often. You can be thrown into hell, he says. And worse than that, it's our default. It's our do-nothing position. Just wanting to go to heaven is not enough to make you a Christian. Just wanting to escape hell is not enough to make you a Christian. But you need to understand the seriousness of sin to avoid hell. You have to understand that sin before God is is deeply disgusting. Otherwise, you would never turn from that way and turn to Christ. Otherwise, you you would never repent in the way that the Bible requires. You need to avoid sin to avoid hell. But, of course, none of us can do that. And, and if you can't avoid sinning as none of us can then you need help. You need rescued. And if you can't avoid sin then you need your sin dealt with to avoid hell. And the only way to deal with it is for someone else to deal with it for you. Someone else has to pay. And this is the, this is the incredible thing about the gospel. Because Where it sounds like a a somber and deeply disturbing situation, whenever you understand the gospel and realize what Jesus does for you, it makes it the most incredible news you've ever heard. Doesn't it? Like how great is the grace of God? How wonderful is this message? If it goes from way down there to you can be free, you you can be rescued, you can avoid this thing that you deserve. Because Jesus deals with our sin. We place our faith in him. We trust in him. We we, we repent from our sins and and he takes our place. He gives us his righteousness. The old uh, children's uh, story idea. He makes our hearts white. They used to be black. He takes your sin on his own body and he pays your way. Let's consider the last two verses here, which talks about salt uh, in three different ways. It's used uh, in a phrase only used in Mark in verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. (coughs) This time, the fire is not a fire of hell, but a fire of purification. Salted with fire. Uh, the, the, this is what's going on here. The trials and hardships of following Jesus are to purify his followers, to take uh, the wood, hay, and stubble, uh, to use a, 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 an image that Paul uses, and to leave nothing, to leave anything built, to leave only what's built on the foundation that's Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13 comes to mind. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Fire purifies, and salt purifies, and the two go together. Uh, That's what's going on here. But there must surely also be some sense of offering. Uh, Fire and salt also belong together at the temple sacrifice. They use both of them. And Jesus wants to emphasize the idea of your life is, is being offered for, for service. It's like Romans 12, verse 1, you know, a living sacrifice uh, that, that, for his service. Everyone will be salted with fire. Then we're on to more familiar territory in verse 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, it is no good. We get this because it's mentioned in other biblical passages. Uh, Christians are to be, what, they're to be salt and they're to be light. Isn't that right? Jesus tells us that at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. The salt purifies, yes, but it also, at this time, preserves. Uh, in the days before the fridge, you used salt to keep food from going off. I'm not sure it worked very well, but that's what they used. We are not to sin. As Christians, we're to preserve the world around us. To hold it back from its descent, to be an example to others, to to be an example of of how to, to, to live of the best of humanity. For apart from Christians, society will become rotten. That's the idea, isn't it? To say no to abortion and gay marriage and a thousand of other things. We don't just let it go to hell in a heartbeat, in other words, the world around us. Jesus says we preserve it. And in the third salt reference, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We're to be people of peace. We're to be known to be people of peace. I think about Philippians 4, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. We're not rabble-rousers. We're people of peace. Sin is serious. Sin is serious for unbelievers. Sin is serious in the life of a Christian too, serious in its implications for others as they watch on, as we feel to preserve, if we're involved in it too. It's not something to be taken lightly. Just because the blood of Christ, and of course it does, and we have forgiveness for, for every sin, if we, if, if we confess and trust in Christ, that's very clear in Scripture. Just because the blood of Christ covers every sin, though, doesn't mean that we carry on sinning, that grace may abound. Paul talks about this in Romans. And he says that, you know what, that attitude soothes that you don't understand the seriousness of sin. Uh, You think you're forgiven and that you're going to heaven. Sure, a little bit of this or a little bit of that doesn't really matter. That's wrong, Paul says. We think it's not serious because we misunderstand the gospel at that point. We think that we're forgiven and that makes it all right. But we need to remember that, do you know what? God didn't just cancel our sins. He didn't just wipe the slate clean. Somebody had to pay. That's the important part here. That's how serious it is. Somebody had to pay. We think it's not serious because we're living in an ocean full of it every day. We're surrounded by it. You know, you, you go to pay the Petrol and the news agent beside the petrol station, or uh, and you see it on the on the pages of the of the tabloids, and you and you see it on the television being glorified, and you see it everywhere you look. And uh, in the office, you hear the conversations, and it's but or you know wherever you're working, right? And if we're little boats sailing on this ocean, right, we have to fight to keep the water out of the boat. not right we're surrounded in this ocean of it and yet we have to fight to keep the water out of the boat sin is so serious that thousands upon thousands of animals died in the old testament you remember when you're reading the and you're thinking this is tough going you know know what you're supposed to think this is serious whenever you hear all those sacrifices and this has to happen on this day and that has to happen on that day and 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 you're thinking "Ah, this makes no sense it's serious it's what you're supposed to hear And that was just a temporary covering, by the way. We think it's not serious because the devil lies to us. He dangles that subtle lie before us. He whispers in our ear, it's just a white lie. It's just a little tax evasion. It's just a little flirting. Everybody does it. It's just one more. But sin is so serious before holy God that Jesus had to die. That's how we know. He had to take our place. And he offers us this wonderful forgiveness as a result and this wonderful freedom and this wonderful escape from what we deserve. And it's so great and it's wonderful good news, but it doesn't come without the bad news. It's so offensive to holy God. We think that people we know or people that that, that have never heard don't really deserve to be punished like this in our subconscious. Maybe you think like that. That shows we misunderstand the seriousness of it. Jesus gives us these shocking images to set the record straight. It would be better. It would be better to self-mutilate than to end up in hell. It would be better to live your whole life with one hand. It would be better to spend your whole life with one foot hobbling around. It would be better for you to spend all your days with one eye than go to hell. Because sin's horrible. It's an affront to God, and it's also crazy. I I challenge anyone to explain to me a sin that is not actually crazy. Mindless. Harmful mindlessness. And madness. Sin will leave you in hell, Jesus says. And he provides a way so you don't have to go there. Does that not make the gospel big? How big is that? How wonderful is that? And the challenge to to share, to warn, to share, and to, 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 to point, to, to invite to Christianity, explore, to, to think about people like, like eternity, right? I'm not meeting this guy, and he's not just an ordinary guy. I'm thinking he's going to hell if he's not saved. I, I need to think like that. See that woman down in the post office? See if she's not a Christian? That's where she's going. And I don't want you to go there. Praise God for Christ. What a wonderful story of forgiveness that we have to share. Isn't God's grace amazing? Isn't it? You, go, you have to keep digging to get how bad this is, right? And then it's so high up, it's well above the ceiling because of how, the distance that God goes for us. In the pit, right to the top. And we are wonderfully Blessed. Let's bow our heads together in the word of prayer. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for a fresh understanding of how far we have traveled as Christians when we believe in Jesus. From deserving of the most horrible of things By your grace, with your favor, by a gift of God, through faith in Jesus, to being right with you, to having Christ's righteousness credited to our account, and to be fit to be with you in eternal life forever. Give us a fresh appreciation for the distance. And yet give us a fresh desire to see people with these Eternal eyes and thereby to be prompted to action, Father. Surely we must. And we ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. We're going to